We are this fall focusing on this topic of prayer. And I, d- I just want to get it out at the very beginning. Can we just all agree that prayer seems a little weird and odd? Like it's just an odd thing, right? I mean, I think about it. We close our eyes. We offer up some words that maybe we've even heard others speak or someone told us to say. And we say it to someone that we can't see. And then we get no verbal response back, acknowledging what we've said or that's even been heard or received. And the truth is, many times I remember growing up saying prayers at night or at meals and thinking, hello, is anyone out there? Like, is anyone actually listening to what I am saying? Or is this just a ritual that I'm going through? I mean, there's no other conversation I've ever had in my life that is like this right, where I say something just to, and I get zero response. I mean, sometimes with my kids or with my dogs, it happens that way where you get no response or the response you don't want. But usually when you have a conversation with somebody, you're talking to somebody, which is what we've been told prayer is, it's we get this communication, this back and forth. So where where did this come from? Why is this even part of the Christian faith? Why don't we just take the teachings of Jesus, live those out, Why does this practice of prayer add to our lives and add to our faith? And this is why we're doing this series. Because even as weird as prayer may seem, it is not just a religious practice of our faith. But when we better understand its purpose and its power, it becomes a vital part of our faith and a vital part of our relationship with God. And the truth is we have often made prayer more complex than it needs to be. We made it more formulaic than God ever intended and more ritualistic than Jesus ever modeled for us. Think about it. Most of our prayers are linked to some kind of event in our day, our life, right? We have a meal. Let's pray beforehand. You're going to bed. Let's say a prayer. You're you're starting your day. You wake up in the morning. Say a prayer. We're having church service. We need to pray. Bad news comes into your life. Let's pray. You want your team to win. Let's pray. If you need a miracle, let's pray, right? I mean, it's prayer often becomes more of a response to a circumstance than an actual practice of pursuing and developing intimacy in a relationship with our creator. So let, let's take the uh, look at the word prayer for a minute, the root words that we get when we look at the Greek word that we that's used all throughout the New Testament for the word prayer. It comes from two action words that actually mean, first of all, to draw near or move towards something. So when you think about prayer, it's actually an, a, an initiative that we take to move towards or draw near to God, our creator, the one who says, I want to have a conversation with you. So in a, if you take a long look back over the history, if we look at uh, the Bible and the stories of how God interacted with man, sorry, that does that sometimes, uh, he, he always wanted to have a conversation with man. Like, so you think about the garden, right? Man, woman, God in the garden talking. And then sin comes in, pushes them away, They're out of the garden, but yet God comes and speaks verbally to people like Noah, Abraham. Then God uses the law and Moses to communicate the prophets, the priests, even kings, uh, judges, all throughout the Old Testament. Look, God is using multiple ways all the times to communicate with us. And eventually, 
You know, he comes in the form of man as Christ and communicates verbally and physically with creation, gives us his word, gives us his teachings to hold on to. God is a God of conversation. All right. So when you think about prayer, this is not some new concept that Jesus just introduced or that we've added on in the last you know, a few centuries into our faith, it has been a practice of God wanting to communicate with man his, and woman, his creation over all of time, all of history. God is a God of communication. And when we think about the root word of prayer, it is our ability to draw near to that, to come into his presence to talk. I, I remember the first time when Katie and I first started dating and or even if you you know, remember the first time you like maybe made a phone call to a person that you were interested in, like that, that, the guts you had to have to pick up the phone. And like, I, I remember the first one, I, it was a rotary phone. Like that's how old I am. You know, and if you don't know what a rotary phone, just go look it up on the internet. But you had to like spin these numbers. And uh, I remember the last number of this girl I was calling one time was a nine. So I, I would bring it all the way up almost and then I would I'd hang it up like I would I would lose like so and I'd have to start over from scratch and I was like just dial the number Patrick and and back then here was the crazy part I did it and I finally got the guts and then you know we don't we have call waiting it's never busy anymore it was busy at the time like she was on the phone but I finally got up the, the guts to she pick up the phone and all of a sudden we were in each other's not physical presence, but we were ready to have a conversation. This is what prayer ultimately is, the ability to step in the presence of God to have a conversation. But there's another word that's attached to the idea of prayer as well, another root word, and it's this idea of drawing near to gain advantage, like to to actually get something, to experience something good. And this speaks to the much deeper meaning of what prayer really is. It isn't a response, but instead it's an initiative we take in order to move closer to, towards God, in order to put ourselves in a more advantageous position to step forward into whatever is the next step of our life and faith journey. So it's not just a hang out and chit chat, small talk. Right? It's actually to get some information, to understand something better so that our, we, we gain advantage, not over other people, just in our life. Gain advantage over our circumstances. Gain advantage over our lack of knowledge. Gain advantage over our sin and our attitudes that we need to, to push past. It is a purpose behind being in the presence. And so if you're going to talk about prayer in a sense, it is moving into the presence of God for a purpose is the easiest way to remember what prayer is. It's not just reciting something ritualistic or just going through. It is, a, it is a moving into God's presence, drawing near to him for a purpose. It is a conduit that God gives us to be able to directly access his presence, his wisdom, his love, his truth, his understanding, his forgiveness in every aspect of his infinite character. I, I, a few years ago, uh, I was, I don't even remember why I did this. It was for some reason, uh, but it was right after President Obama was elected. And I was like, you know, I wonder if what it would take to actually pick up the phone and try to talk to President Obama. So I, did, I looked at the White House phone number. I dialed it in and I said, hey, my name is Patrick. I'd like to speak to President Obama. And they said, hold on just a minute. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's that easy. And like little music is playing. I'm sure it was like, 
the Star Spangled Banner or something on hold. And anyway, somebody picks up and they were like, Office of the President. And I was like, hey, my name is Patrick. I live in, you know, I want to talk to President Obama. And they're like, hold on one second. It just kept me like, it was like three or four times I got put on hold. And I finally got to, I'm going to say, because I could find her name online. It was one of the president's private secretaries. I imagine maybe she's sitting right outside the Oval Office. And I said, hey, my name is Pat. I came, went through my little spill. I'd love to speak to President Obama. And I got a different response. She said, what would you like to speak to him about? And I was like, oh, we're going somewhere now. And so I said, hey, I just want to congratulate him on his win. Uh, I'd love to talk to him about a couple of uh, policy issues. And she said, well, you know what? Let me take your name and number, and I will take a message. And she did. She took the message. And I never got a call back. <laughs> I, never, I did not get to speak to President Obama. And a lot of times we think this is how we approach God, right? Like we throw things out there. We talk to people who seem to be able to talk to God. Or we, get, God, we have a number that we think we can dial that at least can get us close to him. What I want you to hear this morning, what we're learning about prayer, is that we not only have God's phone number, <clears throat> but he will take our call. He will return our messages. He will put down everything else he is doing and speak with us, listen to us, and share his truth and wisdom with us. And this is the beauty of prayer. And so in this series, we're going to take a deep look at this intentional practice of prayer and try to learn how to better incorporate it into our lives in a healthy, meaningful, and impactful way. And we're going to do this in a couple of ways. First, over this week and next week, we're going to pull back some of the unhealthy ideas around what prayer is by looking at Matthew 6 and how Jesus did that in one of his teachings. And then after those couple of weeks, we're going to jump into Luke 11 and see how Jesus teaches his closest followers how to pray and how to connect with the character and wisdom of God the Father. And then at the end of those teachings, we're going to have a beautiful communion celebration together where we're going to allow prayer to be the focus of that time of communion as we remember what Christ did for us, but also the beauty that we get to step into the presence of God. So let's jump in and first look at today how not to pray based on Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to talk about things that prayer is and isn't. And today what we're going to say is this. Prayer is not this notable event. This event that, that, we, that is going to make the news. It is going to be this, you know, headlining thing that, that everybody gets uh, to talk about and see. We're going to learn that that is not what Jesus says prayer is supposed to be. That's uh, look, everybody, I'm praying kind of event in our lives. So if you got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 6. And again, if you have context of Matthew 6, it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We looked a few weeks ago at one of Jesus' teachings when he said, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is turning a lot of religious thought upside down, and he does the same thing with prayer. We see Jesus continue to turn the tables uh, and this section of the Sermon on the Mount deals with this outward religious practices of things like prayer and fasting that people thought made them more righteous, more worthy, more honorable. If I can fast longer than somebody else, or I can pray better than somebody else, or I can give in a way that draws more attention to myself than somebody else, then I am righteous. And Jesus is going to push back on these. 
while he certainly doesn't condemn the practices of fasting and prayer and generosity, what he does is expose the idea that performing these practices with the wrong motives and wrong attitudes does nothing to garner you peace and intimacy with God. And one of the easiest traps that we fall into as we begin to walk in faith with Jesus is to think that following him is about comparing ourselves to others and making ourselves look more spiritual by showing off the things like generosity and submission and knowing how to pray and how to fast and how to give. I I grew up in a church. I I loved the church I grew up in, but we did some weird things. We used to have these competitions. They were called Bible drill. I don't know if you ever, like we would have our, our actual Bibles and they would have all these young kids stand in front of the church and they would call out like Matthew 6, 5. And it was like, it was like you pulled your Bible out of a holster. It was like, and like whoever got there first, like was the winner of the competition. I mean, it was like, there were big prizes involved, like ribbons and free ice cream and things like this. But it was this, you know, it's almost like we made Christianity this competition. And I want you to hear today, when we talk about prayer, this isn't a competition. And this is what Jesus is pushing back on here in Matthew 1, 6, 1, when he says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. So I want you to grab a quick principle here that's this. Don't practice righteousness as a public performance. Righteousness is not this public performance. That's not how we're judged. And I love that Jesus doesn't hold back here. He doesn't say, like, guys, chill out a little bit, like with the competition stuff. He's like, beware. Like, hold on. Big stop sign. Don't go down this road. Do not go down the road of trying to impress other people with how you pray or how much you give or all these other things. He's really setting the alarm off and saying, hold on. Don't do that. And instead, he says, make practice, practice your righteousness as an intimate portrayal of your relationship with God. It's this intimate portrayal, not this public performance. And Jesus, over the next few verses, is going to show us how to do this. The power of righteous practices like prayer isn't found in the size of the audience that they are performed in front of. You're not a better prayer because you can pray in front of five people, 10 people, or 5,000 people. Instead, the power of practice, these righteous practices, is found in the quiet, personal, and private exercise of them with an audience of one, with God. So let's look at how he deals with this in the specific context of prayer and how to, how to make prayer not this notable event, but this beautiful, personal event. So Matthew 6, 5, he, he's going to do this. We're going to look at two verses and kind of look at some of the words in the verses and pull out some principles. And it says this in Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, Jesus fights against the very core of how religious people that day were using prayers. And we're going to look at some of the words in here and see how they were actually doing. He called them out like very harshly. And he first describes them with the word hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Now, when we hear that word today in our our culture, uh, we think of someone who says one thing and does another, right? We see it in politics, business, law enforcement, even in the church. People who speak against things that they call evil and corrupt, 
and yet they end up getting caught with their hands in the very same things that they get angry at other people doing. We, we understand that word. But I want you to understand that word hypocrite during Jesus' day carried some of that same connotation, but it also means something different. It can also be translated as an actor, like a stage actor. Hypocrite, that's actually what it means, an actor. Someone who puts on a performance. Jesus is calling out those who have turned the beautiful, intimate tool of prayer into public performance art. And that's what they had done. They were doing prayers more as a performance, and people knew it. And maybe they were really good at it, right? Maybe they gave a great performance, but it still was not authentic or what God desired. And so I, I love he says, not only are you just a hypocrite, you're putting on a show, a performance, and the words aren't really even matching up with how you're living or what you really desire, but you're putting on a beautiful performance of prayer that he says, now you're doing it, you're, you're standing and praying. And that word standing carries a couple of meanings that we really need to look at. First, the word used for standing here means not only to stand up, but to stand out, to put yourself in the forefront, to step forward and be noticed. Uh, at the gym I've been going to, I got to, to know a guy there who is a, a professional bodybuilder. I mean, he's one of these guys that just, you know, walks around like this. I mean, just ripped everywhere. I mean, he was, when his body fat gets above 1%, like he gets nervous. And I'm like, I've got something to share with you. And uh, if you can get rid of this for me, that would be great. But anyway, he, uh, he's been doing a lot of bodybuilding competitions. And he was showing me some videos from them. And, uh, and, and like, this is their life, getting out in front. I mean, they pose. I can't tell a difference between any of them. They all look the same, but they're posing, and they're like strutting in front of each other. Somebody else steps in front of this guy, and then they all step in front of each other. And this is like actually what was kind of happening in that day. It was like prayer bodybuilding. Like somebody would start praying, and then some other religious person, I've got a better one. I've got a better one. And this is what was going on when it's saying they were standing, not just standing up and praying, like if I asked somebody, hey, could you pray and you would stand and pray? This was them standing up and trying to stand out with their prayers. So a performance, right? But performance out front. But the second thing to understand about the idea of standing and praying is this. Is it expresses the idea of a power position. In that culture, the one who held the higher authority, the higher station in society was the one who stood. So the idea of standing to pray is communicating that these people are telling God what to do instead of asking him what they need to do. They view themselves as the authority, not God. With all that's gone on this week with the, the queen passing away, you're seeing so much protocol, right, in London and who can do this. And, you know, one of the protocols, you know, with the queen and now the king is nobody walks in front of them. You know, they're, they're the first... If they, if they come to a table, nobody sits until they sit. Nobody stands until they stand up. They set the standard because they are the authority. And that's what these people, these religious leaders that Jesus was calling out here, he's like, you're not only putting on a performance, you're not just trying to stand out, but you're setting yourself up to be viewed as the authority. This is the whole, this is anti-prayer. This is not prayer at all. And then he says they were doing it in the synagogues and in the street corners. These performances were going on in church and in public. These shows were getting out of hand. And you would have public prayer performances all around the region, especially on the Sabbath. 
The rabbis, they had books of prayers that each one of them had written or orated. And if you heard a prayer that you thought was a good one, you could go get a copy of that prayer from that rabbi and then go perform it somewhere else. Like, oh, this is greatest hits from this guy. I'm performing this prayer here, right? It's like when you walk into Times Square and you go, that's not Mickey Mouse. I know that's not, but people get their picture made with them. Like, how many Showtime shows can there be, right? I mean, there's only so many acrobatic guys that can do these kind of things. And we see it and we're like, is that really the original, the right one? And it's not. This is what was happening. They were being performed everywhere. And Jesus tells them all this kind of praying is meaningless. And while today we don't necessarily stand in the street corners trying to get people to hear our prayers and embrace our words, we do often still fall into some of the same traps that were prevalent during the time of Jesus. We'll, we'll fall into the trap of using, you know, repetitive, recited prayers. We let someone else pray for us and then applaud their performance and act like we were the ones that prayed it. Are we, you know, get so confused, we see all the craziness, and we just steer clear of the chaos, like we try to do of Times Square, right? We just steer clear of it and don't ever enjoy the true, deep benefits of prayer. So what's a principle we can grab here? I want you to understand this, because sometimes we can make prayer this public thing. Public prayer should not be our primary form of praying. It shouldn't. Like when when Drew stands up here and prays, or we pray at the end of a service, or I pray before, like that that is not our, we don't check that off as, oh, I prayed this week. We had prayers. Like that, we, we're using that as a model and as a, as a moment where we corporately connect, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But that's not your prayer time. That's not my prayer time. It says, you know, they love to stand at the corners, pray at the synagogues, street corners, so they may be seen by others. And we have come to believe that the power of prayer is when someone can stand in front of a crowd or a, and offer flowery or flowing words that make other people respond and feel something. We equate how other people respond to our prayers as the true measure of the power of prayer instead of how God responds to our prayer. If we can, when we're praying, make other people grunt and say amen, we must be good prayers, right? It has nothing to do with the power of prayer. But public prayers are not evil. I don't want you to hear that I'm saying that are wrong. They're just the least representative of what Jesus is telling us to do here. Sometimes hearing someone else pray can help us learn how to pray. They can help us grow in our passion for prayer. But we must be careful not to think that someone else's prayer constitutes my prayer. It's simply getting to listen to their conversation with God. And if they're going in it for a show, to put on a performance, there really isn't anything to learn from them. The best way I can describe it is this. You guys know, most of you know my wife, Katie. You've been around us together There are conversations that Katie and I have that you get to overhear at times. If you're out to dinner with us or here around the church, uh, sometimes we talk about our kids, our family. We talk about, you know, details of our life. But I want you to also hear, there are some conversations Katie and I have together that you don't get to hear. They're private. They're intimate. They're personal. And while we be able to model some things at some level, that's the only conversations we have are not when we're around you. We, we talk to each other in other times as well, right? And this is the same way it is in our prayers to God. This public idea of talking, the time that we pray is when we're at church or at a Bible study or things like that is, is where we're, we're actually missing the more meaningful part 
of prayer. And in the next verse, Jesus gives us a better picture of how to approach the practice of prayer. And this is Matthew 6, 6, when he says this. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. For then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's talk about some of the key words here. He says, go into your room and shut the door. Now, when we hear the word room, we often think about our bedroom or something like that. Like, let me go and just you know, shut my door and get out of the, the craziness of things. I've been talking to Jared and Jana with the new baby. Like, they live in a studio apartment right now. Like, there's nowhere to shut the door. <laughs> that when, when the baby starts crying, like, they're, they're all in it together. Uh, and I want you to hear, when, when Jesus is saying this to them, they did not live in luxurious homes where they had private bedrooms, you know, three or four places they could go. Uh, it reminds me, I, I grew up in a large home. I was uh, you know, blessed uh, to have uh, not only my own room, but after my brother moved out, I like had my own floor. Uh, I had a, my own private bathroom, a bedroom, a living room, a kitchen. It was like a mother-in-law suite downstairs. I had my private driveway down there. My parents got me a, my own phone number. I mean, I was living large as a junior and senior in high school. Like I'm sitting there going, why can't I go back to that right now? You know, it's like I had it. Well, when I went to college, my parents said, you know, hey, we're going to get you guys uh, something to live in, me and my brother together. And uh, what they bought us was a travel trailer. This is a pull-behind trailer. Not a, not a nice double-wide trailer. I mean, this was smaller than almost any New York apartment you see. Like, I could stand in the middle and put my hands on both sides. And me and my brother, two college-age guys, are living in this there's no doors inside. There was like this folding accordion wall. There was one bed. The table then turned into a bed. I mean, the shower itself, I couldn't even stand all the way up in. When I had hair, there was a fan up there, and it sucked my hair up into it. It was a small, tiny place, right? And when you think about that's almost kind of the living conditions they had back then. And when it says, go to your room and close the door and pray, I'm like, God, there's nowhere to go. Like, I can't get away from this. And so when we hear Jesus say this, the word room is actually better translated closet. It is the idea of having to be intentional in finding space to get away from the temptation of any other kind of performance praying so that others can hear me or trying to impress people in isolation, shutting the door going to a place where you're not going to be tempted to, to be distracted and move you know, your gaze and your thought be pulled in a different direction. It's being intentional to, be, to, to get away and to isolate, to go to a secret hidden place. And the truth is you, you can have all the space in the world. This is not a call to like sell everything and move to a small apartment, right? You can have all the space in the world and still not be able to isolate yourself from other forms of distraction or engagement that keep you from focusing on your conversation with God unless you're intentional about it. I, I, I sometimes catch myself how often I'll go to our elevator at our building, I'll hit the button, and I'll see the elevator's like 12 floors away. Maybe that's going to take 30 seconds. Do you know what I do? I pull out my phone, and I start doing something. I, I can't isolate. I can't let my mind stop for a minute. And I've learned I almost have to retrain myself when I pray to get away from those things, to get away from things that will distract me or tempt to draw me away. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, don't try to impress other people, but also don't be distracted 
by other things. And then he says this, then your father who is in secret will see you in secret. And this doesn't mean that God is hidden from us or that we can only find his presence when we're alone. Instead, it means that even when everything else is eliminated from our lives and from our minds, God is still there and he is faithful to meet with us. And this is both a beautiful thought and a scary thought, right? To know that you are never alone and to know that you are never alone. Like it can be both beautiful and scary, but I want you to hear a truth today that has been meaningful to me over the years thinking about this, this aloneness with God, being in secret with God, is this. God's presence is most valuable to me when I'm most vulnerable with him. Not when I'm trying to impress him. Not when I'm trying to act like I'm something I'm not. But his presence is most valuable to me when I'm actually most intimate and vulnerable with him. And this is the beauty of going to the secret place, the place that no other distraction is, where finding vulnerability and valuable time with God can make an impact on your life. And we love to, as much as we, and I, we talk about it in our church all the time, we love to do faith in groups. And it is great to do that. It is good to do so, to worship, discussion groups, small groups, accountability, all that is great. But it is just as valuable to have time with just you and God. And this is the most valuable form of prayer, and it leads to the second principle about public versus private prayers. Public prayers are less meaningful than praying in private. doesn't mean they're, they're not impactful. doesn't mean they're not have some meaning. But it says, when you pray, go into the secret room, shut the door, and pray, and your Father who is in secret then will reward you in secret. You will you'll have his presence more deeply in that secret, private place. You know, we have our worship gatherings on Sunday, uh, we have our groups, and, and we can often, as I mentioned before, attach prayer to certain things, like let, let's pray before church. Let's, uh, we're going to have a, a meeting, a staff meeting. Let's pray before that. We're going to have a meal. Let's pray before that. And, and these practices aren't evil. But let me tell you what happens when that's all we end up doing. It often turns into a practice of simply trying to what I call spiritually sanitize something. If we pray before it, then everything we do after it must be covered by that prayer, right? And we treat prayer like a spiritual salt that kind of adds some godly flavor to whatever we do and blesses it no matter what we actually do afterwards. I'm going to tell you, no matter how much you pray and ask God to bless a 3,000-calorie meal of fried chicken and mashed potatoes, it's not going to be good for you. Like, it's going to taste good, maybe, but it's not going to be good for you. And this is not the primary purpose of prayer. Again, it isn't wrong to pray in groups, to pray at meals, and all that stuff. But what Jesus tells us to do is to elevate our private practice of prayer. The power of prayer is not found in how many people are gathered together to pray. The power of prayer is found in the focus of our heart, soul, and mind on the person and power of God. The goal of prayer is for you to have a personal conversation with God about your relationship with him, about the challenges you are facing, about the way he wants to make his grace and peace known in your life. So when we come to this point and we say, what, how do we begin to elevate our private prayer versus public prayer? And it's a word that I've used often today, and it's simply a word of practice. It is a practice, but it also takes practice. And so my question for you today is simply this. Will you embrace a more private and personal approach to prayer? 
You embrace that. We put that into practice. This is what we're going to be dealing with for the next few weeks is learning how to do this. For some of you, as we hear this, it may seem very foreign. You say, the only time I've ever been around prayer is in a group like this or a small group or a meal. And I just, my only prayer is please don't call on me to pray, you know? Uh, but prayer is, is much more meaningful than that. And as we begin on this journey, I want to challenge you because as we talk about the other practices, as we get into the healthy practices of prayer, unless you're willing to put into practice a private and personal approach to prayer, it will often fall in becoming the performance or avoidance in our life.